Welcome everybody to another podcast sessions of sessions. Uh, happy to have everybody as listeners. You know that we take time to be able to dive in and hear the stories and clinically we really get to get investigate and I personally love to hear from people uh, who are professionals in the field to be able to talk about their experience and be able to glean that and help others out who are uh, other professionals or parents listening. So really excited to have Katie McCoog today join us, who is a clinical director at, um, I'll let her introduce herself more, but she's one of our clinical directors at one of our short-term residential centers uh, in Pennsylvania. Is that correct, Katie? Yep. Tell us a little bit about exactly where you're at would be great. Sure. So I am located in Whitehaven, Pennsylvania. Uh, that is more like Northeast PA. Northeast PA, and it's short-term residential. Maybe just give a description of what is that level of care versus other levels of care? So short-term residential, um, I like to call the sweet spot. Um, it's uh, usually we like to be the medium before you have to step into a higher level of care, or if you're at a higher level of care, it's right before you are discharging home to the community. Um, so our short term is somewhere between 75 and 90 days of stay, um, and it is intensive therapy, but we really use um, life coaches and the staff to practice this experiential DBT skills and other modalities that we have. Great. The reason I wanted you to talk about it is because, I mean, for the average person hearing, like, the, the actual, the clients come and live there, like they're there 24 hours a day. That yeah. is really intensive. Maybe talk a little bit about that. It's a pretty captive audience, I would imagine. It is. Um, it sounds really intensive. However, I think that like our environment here is very homey. We do have life coach staff that are here to support our students. They're here 24 um, hours a day, seven days a week. And then we have therapists here to help with individual and family sessions and group sessions. It feels intense sometimes, but really um, once you start building those relationships with the students and their families, it feels more like a family. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I love that family aspect. It's homey. And and some of the realities are is that because some of the behaviors and the emotionalness is uh, somewhat intense and acute, uh, especially it might the behaviors might exceed being able to keep them safe at home. And so they actually need to be able to have that um, environment, that immersion into that environment. And I guess the reason I wanted I like to talk about this and bring that up is there's lots of therapists like yourself who it's it, it can be a very um, daunting, I should say. It's re incredibly rewarding, I imagine, but there it's it's a lot. It's a lot all the time. It's not like you see them for an hour and then they then they go right. home. Yeah, correct. I I really feel like residential is its own entity. Um, it's, it's not like outpatient at all. I mean, there are intensive outpatient, right, and PHPs, but um, every time you walk into work, your students are here, um, you're living and growing with them. Um, so it is, it can, it can be pretty intense sometimes, uh, especially if one student is really struggling one day for any reason, it can set off, you know, another student, or we can just be rallying around them like a community to help support them as well. And plus you're doing individual sessions, you're doing family sessions, you're doing group sessions. I know they go to school there, they do a bunch of things. And um, 
Yeah, the reason I wanted to mention it is because our topic today is really talking about clinical resiliency. And um, <laughs> talking about that's important because, as you can imagine, we there's a lot of therapists who, and we'll talk about this word a little bit, but use the term burnout. Yeah. I'm, I'm burnout. I, I know you've had, I'm sure you've had some experiences with, with that. So let's go ahead and climb in. Thanks for setting the stage, Katie. I really appreciate it, knowing that you're uh, certainly an expert in understanding high high caseloads, intensive being a, a therapist with intensive students, and wonderfully, we have very involved parents. Yes. Um, so that becomes its own, can be a, a stressor in its own. Right. So if we can, let's, let's, clinical resiliency, we talk about this term resiliency is kind of out in the world. I don't know that um, it's defined real well. People hear it, but I, I saw what what are your thoughts on what? How would you define the term resiliency? It's interesting that you asked me to define it. Um, in the midst of researching what resiliency really is, based on all of these different studies that um, have already been conducted for multiple years, and they each person has their own definition of um, what resiliency is. I find um, resiliency is the ability to respond um, to your environment um, or simply put like the bouncing back part of it. So you have a situation and what's your ability to kind of think about, respond, and then be able to function through it. Oh, I like that definition. I appreciate that. Uh, So just building on that, I would agree with you, Katie, that there's been lots of research on some of the um, research based that I've done in looking at, I love this definition that they talk about resiliency. If you imagine it as this sort of cycle, that if we move from a place, a baseline of positive affect, that we can rely on that baseline as our, yeah, as our baseline. And then as we experience negative affect, we actually circle through that and yet we don't stay there. And then we can go ride that through and experience it, and it doesn't necessarily decompensate us or dysregulate us to the point where, you know, we're disabled in some sort of way or it's affecting our daily lives. And then we circle full back and return back to that positive baseline of affect. I like to use that term when talking about doing therapy with kids because oftentimes we think about kids as we want them to be resilient. And how can I send my kid to you and you guys really build their resiliency. And I always like to say, well, if we use that definition, we, and it is about a bouncing back and being able to do that, oftentimes we have to assess what is the baseline. Mm-hmm. Do they even have a baseline of positive affect or stability or regulation? I, I, I wonder if you've noticed that even with therapists, do we have to, <laughs> is that a helpful construct even for therapists? I think, I think therapists kind of set higher expectations for themselves than they do for their own students and families. And oftentimes it's unrealistic because um, they just find themselves that they have to have a higher standard, right? Like I'm the professional in the field, so I should be able to fill in the blank when really that's, that's not fair. Um, setting what we teach and preach to our families and our students Um, we should be able to absorb for ourselves. And something that I love so much about resiliency is that it exists in every single culture and population. It just, it's spoken in a different language. Maybe it looks differently, but the the essence of resiliency is it's there. It's present for everybody. 
Um, but what does it look like for you? And you should be the person that defines your own resiliency. Interesting. Yeah, I like I like that it's a universal concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also want to highlight what you said that as therapists, I think we have these expectations of ourselves to yeah. be able to endure and be there for everybody. And I mean, we're going to talk about vicarious trauma in a second, but yeah. you're constantly absorbing, especially if you're a relationally attuned therapist where there's a tremendous amount of empathy and that could, that can certainly inhibit it. And I guess my point is I wonder how much supervision do you have to do where you talk to therapists and say, how, how do you have this baseline? How do you know how to get back to the baseline? Are you even familiar with the, what the baseline feels like? And maybe that baseline, I would, I would use the term re- regulation to be able to return to this baseline. But I, yeah, I wonder your thoughts, how much, how much of your supervision with therapists. So with my team specifically, I really like to do like weekly supervision where it's the structured, you sit down and you talk about it. However, um, building relationships, I think is incredibly important for any human being to be able to function through any event in their life, right? I mean, we are meaning makers and we thrive on relationships and that's developmentally what we need to grow and learn. So with my clinicians, I love having any reason if their door is open I pop my head in and just say hey how you doing need a cup of coffee want to go for a walk so there is this this structured supervision that's very essential for them to be able to break down and process like countertransference if there's vicarious trauma like yes we have all of that and pull them out of that element and let them know I see you as a human being and you're allowed to be a human being with me. So let's let's get out of this environment so we can really get to it. Um, sometimes I feel like people might deflect because they have that unrealistic expectation of themselves. Like, I'm the therapist, so I should be able to. Well, stop being a therapist for a second. Let's be <laughs> people and let's just talk. Yeah, I love that. And then how do you notice? Let's just be overt about the word. Um, I hear this from therapists all the time. I'm feeling burnout. Yeah. And burnout, yeah. and I'm always curious. What 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 is what does that mean for you? And what are your thoughts about that term? Again, I like to just a conversation because if we were to go by definition, it almost presents as like you're done with the field. Burnt out means I'm done, and I can't even bring myself. Um, but what is what is your burnt out, and can we define it, and can we rephrase it? Um, I am a big believer that language really helps your where you are mentally. And so if you're using burnt out, well, then how am I supposed to help you come back around? How are you going to walk into work today and be present and show up for yourself and for your clients? If you're tired, if you need a break, if you need me to step in, like let's start defining and giving that a different language and a different vocabulary than just burnt out because burnt out to me means you're you're completely done and you're walking out my door instead of Katie I really need a break I need help um what do I do I feel lost I feel detached I don't know what to do with this case like we get very complex cases um and for you to feel that you just don't know what to do is also okay maybe you're not burnt out maybe you just really need support hmm well, it seems like I like, I really value that you're using the term burnout. Like I'm picturing this piece of wood that literally is burnt up and it's got no life left in it. And you yeah. said, I, I, I'm done. And it's interesting how 
not just therapists, but I think as people in general, when they're feeling this burnout, we have these interesting patterns to kind of make the burnout worse. Like, oh, yeah. To perpetuate the burnout rather than knowing how to like step out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Maybe speak a little bit about, have you noticed that before, you know? I have. Um, I feel like you get stuck. It's almost like tunnel vision. Like you hmm. can't picture any other way. And maybe the intensity that you are experiencing is burnt out, is describing it all in, you know, one word, but really it's so much more, there's so many more layers underneath what the burnt out is, but because you're fixated on, I'm burnt out, I'm burnt out, it's almost, well, what does that mean to you? Are you now, I've had some of my clinicians feel like I'm burnt out, I'm a failure, I'm not good enough. What am I doing here? Can I really handle this? And it's, well, yeah, you're a human being and it's okay to be affected by this stuff. Um, how do we protect ourselves emotionally, which we don't often think of when you go into sessions and you hear this complex trauma all the time. Um, so again, like supervision is really, really important. And sometimes it's your supervisor that has to pull you out of it because you get stuck, which is very normal. You do get stuck. Yeah, we, we've certainly noticed that um, people get stuck. And I, I use the term they perpetuate it. They kind of just yes. stay in this burnout mode. Oftentimes, we notice that there's this interesting projection of resentment. Like, my caseload's too high, or it's the company, or the expectations, or it's mm -hmm. the parents, or it's the, the clients are too acute and too demanding. And it just becomes this, um, I would always say that that's a good indicator that you know you're headed towards um, being overwhelmed or overstressed. Personally, I don't, I'm with you, Katie. I think you're saying this. I don't like the term burnout because it does mean there's some finality to it. Like right. I've burnt, I've burned up all my fuel and nothing's left. Right. Like actually, I don't think that's actually the case. Um, how do we see it as maybe you got overwhelmed or overstressed? And then how do we devise ways to mitigate that? And I, I one thing I wanted to say, and I think you mentioned this, um, was that oftentimes we have this expectation that we can perform and we shouldn't get burnt out and do this. And we take it as some sort of moral failing. Like mm -hmm. it's me as the, as the therapist. I, right. I just, uh, something's wrong with me. I, I can't do it. And then it gets really convoluted with that sense of self-doubt, mm -hmm. maybe even shame turns into this resentment. And I've heard this and maybe you have too. Well, I just need a better work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I giggle. I've said that before in my earlier days of being a therapist. So I don't mean to giggle, but it's like, no, yeah, it's, it's great. That before. I have definitely felt that before. Like I need to be more balanced. Okay. But what does that mean? What does that actually mean? You know, is it, is it the work? Is it, are you burnt out? Are you blaming and projecting like you said, Rob, or is it, I need better boundaries and I need to feel not as much guilt when I implement my boundaries, because we're teaching other people to have boundaries, we should have them for ourselves too. And that's something, certainly if you're a therapist or you're a clinical director, that should be something that's coming up in supervision. Yes. To be able to discuss, you know, our, our understanding of, yeah, where, where are our, our boundaries? Why are we feeling overstressed? I, I like the analogy somebody said to me, People like to say I need a better work-life balance, but I've rarely ever heard that it's, man, 
I really need to spend way less time with my children or my family. I need to spend less time. I took way too much vacation this year, right? Right. You you never hear people say that. What do they always say? Oh, I need to cut back on work. I need to do that. So I I, I like to think about that, that like you're saying, maybe it's not about balance. It's reconceptualizing. What am I doing? What's meaningful? What are what what's exceeding my boundaries? Is it creeping into um, some time that I have away from work? Are parents somehow am I allowing myself to get enmeshed? Well, lots of times that comes up, especially when you have um, really demanding, high acute kids and parents. Well, and what am I what am I actually in control of? Because sometimes it's. If you're here and you're constantly working, then I have control of the situation. The kid will do better. Or the parents will understand or the team will start doing this practice. And it's trust. You know, what are you actually in control of and trusting your team and trusting yourself that you've put the work in and you're um, doing, uh, you know, really good foundational work with your students and your families that you actually have to give them the opportunity to now practice it themselves beyond you just being there. Um, take a step back. It's okay to do that. So let me ask if I'm a therapist, mm-hmm. what should I bring to my, we talk about supervision, super important, um, having regular meetings with a supervisor or, you know, certainly if you're in a clinical setting, whoever's your manager should be able to approach some of that stuff with you. If you're a therapist, what I don't want to do is just to rah-rah them into like, oh, you know, here, just try harder and change. I don't want to do that. What? And I don't, I know you don't either. If you're a therapist, what are some things that um, you might be looking for to recognize that you might be coming overstressed or you might be coming developing some sort of um, overwhelming feelings or what are the indicators, some of these indicators if I'm a therapist or a new therapist, what what do I look for? Okay, so I will do my best um, to give some because again, I think that it's it's really on the individual, Um, but any change in thought. So if you're usually going to work and you're in a good state of mind um, most of the time and then you start kind of dreading work or you're fixated on what you have to do or worried about how the milieu is going to be today or I've got a lot of work or um, you know I would pay attention to your thought patterns of that um, honestly because that it's so easy to fall into it without recognizing it and so self-awareness of how you're even thinking on your way to work is really important I would like you to remember to eat. It's really, really important to eat your lunch. If you need a snack, eat. Um, A a healthy lunch. (laughs) A healthy lunch works too, yes. Um, If you're a coffee drinker or water drinker or something, like realize if you've gone a couple of days without eating your lunch, okay, so what does that say? Because now you're actually neglecting what you need for for your body to function and for you able to to do um, therapy and be present for it, you know, I, and I, I say it because I've actually missed lunch a bunch of times, you know, in a week. So pay attention to like, what are your habits? What are you doing? How are you speaking to other people? Um, 
you know, what are the words you're using? How do you feel on a client? Can you talk about it with your supervisor? Do you feel uncomfortable with this client or talking about it or asking for help? Or how are people responding to you? Those um, are those are great ones. Yeah. I, I, I like one that you mentioned up is recognizing. Um, I always use some Carl Rogers type of mindset. If I'm shifting out of unconditional positive regard for people, and I notice that I'm getting a little bit short or I'm having inaccurate expectations or this is coming up. For me, I always like to tell therapists, wow, if that's happening for you, boy, we need to talk about because that's one of the stepping stones, the gateway into this term that you're going to use. I'm, I'm burnout. Yeah. Or if I'm leaving work and I'm slightly resentful, mm-hmm. like feeling like, oh, that darn paperwork is just I know documentation isn't fun. Right. But. When it's just like I'm behind mm-hmm. and I'm procrastinating and I'm not staying on top of it, that's just part of the job. Right. Uh, oftentimes, that that's something too. That's you're gonna you're gonna use the burnout word or have that yep. mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, Katie. Th- those are good ones. I appreciate that. So I, you talked about relationship. I I'd like to bring up. We'll talk a little bit about flow state. But in, in your mind, how does a therapist mitigate? and see that this is reward? How do I have more investment than I do withdraw in my clinical practice? Recognizing progress, um, no matter how big or small and who the progress is, where it's coming from, I think um, it's those little wins in life that really keep you going and you have more little wins than grand ones, right? But recognize the progress. and understanding that if you've if you've worked with a family or a client and or you're working on yourself and you've been making all this progress and then all of a sudden you stop well is it plateauing or is it stabilization and really think about that because plateauing could give like a negative um thought to it and stabilization is well you're you're finally not in in that um negative behavior pattern anymore, regardless of who that is. So recognizing that any progress can be good progress. I'm going to ask a little bit of a provocative question because I'm going to reflect the work of Scott D. Miller, Dr. Miller, and his group is that how does a therapist and a supervisor, how do they actually know that they're making progress? Is it the same? What's the same? What, what has changed? Okay, so good. Yeah. I, I, I like to use um, data with my clinicians because they are a little bit more black and white thinkers. And if they listen to this, I love you guys. Um, <laughs> but they are. So they really respond more to like data. And so any movement in our data, if it's moving forward or if it's not moving backwards, but it's been the same for a couple of weeks, then let's bring that out. And um, any change that is moving forward for the client or the families is helpful. So maybe define, I love that you're using the term data. If if I'm just a clinician, I'm doing a standard practice and I'm not 
gathering a bunch of data. Sure. What are mechanisms that you use? When you use the term data, what are you really referring to? So there's data that I like to use for progress with my clinicians um, specifically for like their job roles. So I do like chart audits. And what if we're really struggling to get our notes done on time because maybe we are feeling overwhelmed? And I do weekly chart audits with them and I can actually point out like, Okay, last week maybe you were only 89% on time, but this week you're doing 98%. So let's talk about the things that worked for you. Um, when it comes to client data, that we, we have a lot of surveys that go out that the clients and the families actually answer. Um, and it's their perception of how they're doing and with their symptoms and functioning in their family, at school, in their community. And so it'll give us a number and it's the movement of the number. So do you want me to get into details of each one? Like some numbers you want to be high and some numbers you're actually, you're doing golf, you want them to be low. And so when these specific surveys are, are showing us like, well, this is where the client's coming in at their baseline. And then what's the movement happening after they've been with us for a little bit? So that's the type of data that we collect. Yeah, I appreciate that. And just giving some specificity to it is for an example is you would administer a depression inventory mm -hmm. or you would do an anxiety and these are validated instruments be it the PHQ-9 or the GAD-7 or even a measurement of well-being like the WHO-5. Yeah. You're administering this while youth outcomes questionnaire you actually have the parents do them as well? Yes. Yeah so actually what I'm hearing you say Kate is those measurements give the client a voice Mm -hmm. And that's a really great way to see it on number, a actual data on progress. Because let's let's be real. Sessions can be hit or miss, and we think they went really well or really bad. And the actual client might have a different experience, or the parents might have a different experience. What I love so much also about um, the surveys that we use is very often we have people come to our program that they they feel a certain way and they don't know how to put it into words. And so how do you then find a baseline? How do you then know what we're gonna work on? How do we know what the dysfunction of the family is and how to help like healthier attachments and relationships with mom or dad or you know, whoever the caregiver is and you don't know how to communicate it because maybe you never learned it, which, okay, that happens. So this survey actually gives us a really great picture of Oh, so with a PHQ-9, which is your depression survey, this person might have an elevated number nine, which is like suicidal ideation is fleeting or it's, it's there, it's very present. Um, but you don't know how to tell anybody because you just never learned it. Maybe you just felt so awful that like it's, you're blocking the ability to even understand and absorb what you were learning in the past. So it gives us a really good picture of understanding like maybe where they're at. Um, and then we start there and then help teach them how to communicate their thoughts and feelings through that. I, I'm really smiling because it's such a beautiful thing that I don't think most people think it's counterintuitive. Like actually using objective data will actually help to reduce this term burnout. Like it's actually objective. It takes some of the subjective, am I doing good? Am I not? I mean, it is just really amazing that we actually can use that objectiveness to weave in to increase resiliency because now we can see it more objectively. That's about, Katie, really, 
really, I love that we got into actually, wow, using, <laughs> using data. And we actually, there, there's actually a therapeutic alliance scale that's yes. used too. Yes. Maybe talk a, a little bit about that. Why, why would that help therapists? So the Therapeutic Alliance scale, we have students um, fill out their own survey and we have um, each caregiver involved fill out their own survey from their perception. And um, it also helps kind of tell the story. Um, honestly, the, the outcome tools that we use is like a storyboard for me so I can understand. So, um, you know, you could have a drop in Therapeutic Alliance, meaning how well do I feel like I am heard or connected to my therapist or the staff at the program and if there's a dip after it's been pretty great um to me i like to look at that and and talk about it because the therapists often think my gosh what am i doing wrong they don't like me and well when did you have your family session because i'm looking at these other tools and did you did you hit a button that maybe they haven't uncovered that topic before because that could be um uh, uh-oh, <laughs> like that's the nicest way to say it. The family could feel like, well, I don't like this therapist. And then they do a drop in it, but maybe you're actually on to something. So you don't actually want the therapeutic alliance score to be high all the time because then we're not really doing our job. We, we need to push the envelope and help them discover what the core issues are in, in order for actual healing to happen. We don't want to mask it, no band-aids. What's really going on? Let's get to the core of it. I like, told my families, if you don't tell me you hate me at least once, I'm not doing a very good job. <laughs> but if you don't have the maturity of the experience or the objective data to know that, you, as a new therapist, you might take it personally and like, oh, oh everybody, everybody hates me. My job's terrible. I'm not doing a good job. I thought it was all about, you know, making people feel warm and fuzzies. And you're saying, actually, that's not it. This is a different paradigm shift. Let's use objective data. And if I'm hearing you, Katie, you're also saying that whole process of doing surveys and all of that gives us a clearer roadmap when we're looking at treatment. So it yeah. it actually gives us a more accurate prescription and a more accurate roadmap that actually is incredibly impactful for the therapist to have confidence and not feel like it's this willy-nilly subjective thing and I'm bearing all the responsibility of it. Yeah, so, I, wow. One incredible way to work on resiliency is to use the measures and use more objective means to be able to do that. Really terrific. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Well, along those lines, um, I wanted to mention that doing Therapeutic Alliance, I mentioned Scott Miller before, and when sure. we talk about resiliency is often, or reward or feeling burnout, is often linked to therapists overestimate their effectiveness by somewhat like, over the last 40 years, almost 85%. We overestimate our effectiveness. And at the end of the day, it really is about looking at patient outcomes, long-term outcomes. Right. And um, Scott Miller's work and his colleagues in particular, all of their research indicated that the therapeutic alliance was the greatest percentage and greatest variance for actually affecting that, that change. It wasn't specific to, I think the modality and the intervention was less than 1% of the variance of change. So I'm just pushing on the fact that knowing the numbers, but really examining the relationship has the greatest impact, not only in client outcomes, but I would imagine for the therapist's sense of success and competence as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
it's funny because we we use um, modalities. I find a lot of our families ask us, you know, the modalities that we use here at the program, and I understand why because to them it's like a comfort of trying to understand what's going to help their child, and it the modalities are important, right? We want to teach these skills, but you can't learn skills from somebody you don't trust you're not really going to learn it, you're not gonna absorb it, you may not even listen to it. So why would you wanna work with somebody, become vulnerable and start really digging through all of this stuff if you don't trust the person in front of you? So it really is relationship-based and we get to use all these other tools as well. I really value that. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit. Um, we, we talked about ways to mitigate it. I would just like to touch on a few things. Um, when we talk about being a therapist, I always like to ask the question, as a therapist, one of the greatest ways to prevent this burnout or this sense of resentment is what's filling your well or what's what's rewarding to you. I, I don't know how, how you approach that with, with your team, but I always like to, maybe your thoughts on that, Katie, is do you, how do you know your clinicians or what's rewarding for them? Well, Knowing your what or your why, you know, depending on what theory you're coming from, but like what, what brought you into this field in the first place and how are you working towards this goal, I think is really important. Um, so knowing if it's fulfilling or not any progress at all that's going towards your what, um, I think brings them back. So knowing your what is really important. Knowing your what, knowing your why. I, I've, I have found, and maybe you too, is that somehow people get into this field thinking that it's this altruistic life that I'm going to leave of just giving, giving, give, where I notice those are the people who usually have nothing left to give very quickly, right? Like the well, the well becomes empty pretty quick. And I'm always like, no, let's change the framework. It actually, this is you need to be simultaneously growing and experiencing that growth, like you mentioned before, in progress, as well as your clients. Right. Boom. And so I, I, I don't know. I always like to bring up this term. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with flow state. Are you familiar with flow state? So yeah. flow state has been a long time studied. It's this, and I'll give you the three criteria, but flow state is something that when you're doing it, there's three criteria. That time transform. There's a time transformation. You kind of forget about time. Time disappears when you're doing a certain activity. The next one is that you're appropriately challenged. Your skill set is appropriately challenged, where you're not overly challenged or you're not under challenged. Mm -hmm. And then the final one is called unambiguous feedback. So I always like to bring up for anybody, say, guy, what's an activity that you do that gets you into that flow state? Can you think of one for, for you, Katie? I know I've talked to a lot of people that, like, my son's a rock climber. He's mm -hmm. like, Dad, I love rock climbing. And if we talk about it, it actually gets him into the flow state. Time disappears. Mm -hmm. He gets immediate feedback, doesn't he? Like, you make a wrong hold. You immediately get the feedback, um, which is great. And he's appropriately challenged. He actually doesn't do the climbing that exceeds his ability or else he would get frustrated with the activity. Um, so I, I don't know if there's something for you that gets you into that flow state. Well, I really hope you believe me when I say um, residential, <laughs> being here. <laughs> yeah, I, I like great. to tell my, um, my kids, 
you know, my kids. The clients here, sorry, but when they come, it's family. Um, time, time does kind of disappear. You get really sucked into the environment and what you're doing and the why you're doing it. And I told them that I haven't worked a day in my life. <laughs> so it's my flow state is being here. Yeah, and so now I like to put a label to it. And I love that you're saying it's actually being in this therapeutic environment is that flow state for you. That actually oh, yeah. you don't leave and say, gosh, I worked too many hours today. Like I'm just resentful that I that I, I, I worked so many hours. It's not about that. The time actually disappears and you're appropriately challenged, right? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> but, some like, days more than others, sir. <laughs> some, some days more than others, certainly. But and then you're constantly getting feedback from the clients yes and the therapist and it's unambiguous it is so clear so i like to bring that up so now we have a construct especially for those um, people listening or might be clinical directors or therapists or professionals um, to be able to recognize that i always like to say to bring it up in supervision that a therapist should be doing therapy that they actually enter into this flow state Mm -hmm. because flow state, as you know, as we defined it, you're saying, I don't really count it as work. I count it as an integrated part of myself. Yes. And you're not dividing it out. And that's ideally what we would want for our therapist to be able to recognize and identify, wow, I'm actually in this flow state where it's rewarding for me and I have appropriate challenges. I, I meet the criteria and that's, I'm grateful for it rather than resentful for it. Absolutely. Once you start becoming resentful, then I think we're starting to walk down that path of we're very overtired and using the burnout term. Yeah. And not that you're going to be in flow all the time. That doesn't happen. It's not flow all the time, but a little bit of flow. Because I'm amazed at how many people, even from a clinician's, you ask them about flow and there is no flow. Mm. They can't identify it. And then, you know, uh uh-oh, the reason I wanted to bring up, that's a huge red flag. Right. If there's no recognition or awareness of entering in and meeting this criteria of flow state, I can guarantee you how long are they going to last? Right. They aren't yeah. going to last. So thanks for letting me bring that up. Um, I really appreciate it. I think that's one of those things that I want to make sure that we give um, some resources mm-hmm. to therapists and clinical directors to recognize, gosh, am I getting burnout? What should it feel like? Mm-hmm. How should it be rewarding? I, I think I think that's important. Well, Katie, thanks about that. Um, so let's shift gears just a little bit. Now that we understand, we're talking about flow state, and you've done so well to articulate, hey, some things to be aware of and all that. Let's dive into vicarious trauma because this is one that, as in the helping profession, especially one like ours, we knew it going into it, didn't we? Yes. It wasn't like some surprise that like I'm going to listen to people's troubles and their trauma and all of this. So so maybe a little talk a little bit about Katie um how you like to conceptualize vicarious trauma and um how that shows up with with your clinicians and with your practice. I think um I mean sometimes it's completely evident to a person and they really feel it. Um they take it home with them. It's in thoughts it's you're trying to cook dinner and you're already thinking about maybe the things that you've heard today and it's really affecting you and you're not functioning as you used to and sometimes I think that it's not I think that 
vicarious trauma can be something that happens over time that you don't actually recognize that you're experiencing until you have someone from the outside say, are you okay? Because you, you're, you don't seem yourself lately or whatever that looks like for you. Um, and so I think it's important for people to recognize that, I mean, to me, I, of course, I broke it into like two things very simply, but sometimes you really feel it and, it, and it's in your face and you can't avoid it and you're, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I can work with this case because I'm having counter-transference. Um, and sometimes it's, I've been working with maybe a specific population for so long that I'm not recognizing that I'm now becoming reactive to my clients instead of responding to them and treating everybody as though this is the population, whether it's colleagues, it's clients, it's outside people, you're at the grocery store. So vicarious trauma to me is, um, it can be sneaky. <laughs> it's really important to um, have a relationship with somebody that you work with that can kind of help you make sure that like, you're regulating it and you're really monitoring it because especially in trauma therapy you hear so much or you see so much but recognizing what do you need for yourself to just stay emotionally protective yeah great definition um to add on to what you're saying is that vicarious trauma I, I like to add this piece for most people is that it's a it's a result of cumulative exposure from somebody else's traumatic experience that um I like to say it's sort of like you say it's sneaky. Uh, I'll, I'll use an old school analogy of the frog in the frog in the boiling water. We as therapists, you know, the frog, you put him in some lukewarm water and you turn up the heat, it boils and the frog doesn't know to jump out. And before it knows it, it will actually be in the boiling water to its own detriment. Um, I think as therapists, you're saying kind of the same thing. We're the same way. We're just, we're hearing it. We're taking it in. We think that we're dealing with it. But all of a sudden, like trauma does, it starts to show itself in all kinds of peripheral auxiliary ways. Right. Maybe even somatically. I'm feeling tension or I'm not, like you said, maybe I'm not eating right or my, my movement is, or I'm getting headaches or, or whatever it is. So there's all this trauma that can be experienced. And we as therapists have to know that's actually part of our job. Yeah. Like we are prime susceptible I mean, it's like being firemen, but we have to go into the fire every single day. Right. Yeah. So something to be aware of. And that, it's amazing how much of that exists. Um, maybe you're saying this too. That exists sometimes uh, underneath the surface in a pre-conscious way for therapists. And then sometimes it manifests in a way like I'm getting irritated or I'm burnt out when they don't even recognize, gosh, it's actually a buildup of all of this vicarious trauma and vicarious stress. Right. that I've that I've endured. Yeah. So I really appreciate talking about it because I think it's important that it's oftentimes burnout is a cumulative effect of a bunch of different things. Absolutely. And, and I don't yeah. I'm sorry, I was just gonna say I don't feel like anybody is truly immune to it either. So <laughs> I've gotta say, like when I was, you know, entering this field about 17 years ago I definitely went in with like nope I'm fine like it's not going to affect me and yeah no it really does it, so don't think that anyone is immune to it there's no special thing to stay you're you're going to be affected especially when you put your heart into something and you're in your flow state you're going to get affected by it and it's okay but like how do you take care of yourself 
that's a really important question to constantly evaluate. So maybe we can give, as we close, Katie, this has been so helpful to talk about. Maybe we can give some specific things. I always like to tell um, even clinical directors or anybody in the field, boy, mentorship is really key. Mentorship Absolutely. is a primary thing. What, what are some other things you would say are real specific things to do in the field? I, mean, I feel like I've said this a couple of times and I'll just keep saying it because it's part of my practice of who I am as a social worker, but relationships are incredibly important to me. Um, so having a great supervision, very intentional about it, having strong relationships with people that you have someone to go and talk to um, and, and be able to share that with. Um, therapists, I am a big believer that therapists should have therapists. <laughs> Because who else can you say all of this to and really lay it all out on the line and feel that um, protection and that comfort and the openness and the space to do it? Um, having boundaries, knowing them, and trying to feel minimal guilt when you implement your boundaries. I mean, we, at least I speak for myself, sometimes I feel guilty when I say, no, I can't do this right now because it's a, a boundary for me that I need a break. Um, but understanding that it's important for me to take it or I won't be able to show up the best way that I can show up usually. And I can't support you enough to say structure and boundaries is necessary to actually have accurate empathy. This isn't a process. Therapy is so much integrated on empathy and with being burnt out, with having vicarious trauma, those are things that erode our empathy, and then we tend to we can get enmeshed and start to feel so. I love the Katie. You're saying no, no. You got to have structure. You got to have some boundaries, and get some relationships that support that. Right. And I'm saying get into a mentorship or a supervisory relationship, or get with a therapist if you know this to help monitor it. Because if you don't monitor it, it often grows like a weed, and then before you know it. You don't want to be in the profession anymore or else you're trying to figure out how to get a better work-life balance. And then, and then it kind of spins out and the burnout just never goes away. Right. And then you're, I've, how many times I've seen therapists take vacations mm-hmm. and this is going to heal my burnout. Mm-hmm. And actually they come back and about three days later. Right back. Yep. R- right back to it. And the vacation yep. magically didn't do anything rather right. than here, do all these other things. It's a constant process. Yeah. Katie, this has been so incredible. Thank you so much. Any final words to in regards to this clinical resiliency we've been talking about? It's been so helpful today. It's okay to not be okay as long as you go help for it. Really, really well said. Appreciate that, Katie. Um, everybody, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your time. This is such an important topic, especially with all that's going on in the world, the levels of anxiety and depression and we know that there's conflict happening everywhere i mean who's who's not feeling a little bit overwhelmed and can certainly feel some burnout so those have been super incredibly helpful tips appreciate so much your time katie and thank you for all the listeners um thank you for listening to sessions and uh doing that please access these podcasts wherever you access podcasts are are great so look forward to ever seeing everybody next time bye-bye